Good morning, and welcome to another episode of NBA's Unplugged. I'm your host, Fej McDermott, and let's get into today, Monday, November 2nd. Uh, so jumping into events, we have a number of events coming up today. The first is one being put on by the Operations Management Club for Amazon Pathways and Student Programs, open to everyone today from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Fuck that up. Uh, the next one is going to be a event hosted by the Marshall Interactive Gaming Association, co-hosted with Marshall Pride being uh, the Los Angeles Gaming Society, an event with Riot Games and Manticore Games that is happening tonight from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. Uh, then tomorrow on Tuesday we have three events, one being hosted by BEA, and that is a United Talent Agency CEO uh, Jeremy Zimmer talk happening at 3.30 to 5 p.m. Then we have Marshall Finance Association doing an investment banking tech prep uh, from 5 to 6 p.m. And then finally the Challenge for Charity is doing their weekly C4C Special Olympics bingo from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, then no events on Wednesday, oddly enough, okay. And so Thursday we have three more events. The first being the Marshall Consulting and Strategy Club, um, co-hosted with the High Tech Association, doing a career panel in high tech strategy, followed by the Marshall Mobility and Automotive Club doing a virtual happy hour from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. And then finally, the Marshall Data Analytics Club doing an alumni fireside chat from 5.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Then finally on Friday we have a number of events. Okay, let me just speed through these then. So LNBA is doing a fireside chat uh, from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. Uh, Global Supply Chain Club is having an alumni come and talk to the class from the class of 2018 from noon to 1 p.m. as well. James is doing, uh, so the Jewish Association of Marshall Students is doing a second year internship and alumni full-time panel from 12.30 to 1.30. Then we have the Healthcare Informational Interview Panel with USC alumni from 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, we had the Marshall Gaming Association bringing in the Skybound Gaming Panel from 1 to 2 p.m. The Marshall Finance Club doing corporate finance mock interviews from 2 to 3 p.m. Uh, the Graduate Marketing Association co-hosted with uh, Black Graduate Business Leaders and the Marshall Consulting and Strategy Club doing digital and growth marketing from 4 to 5 p.m. And then finally, uh, BEA is doing an SEA Stark and BEA meetup. Uh, so I think that's the School of Cinema Arts at USC, so the Stark School uh, and BEA meetup from 6 to 7 p.m. Uh, and that's all the events that are coming up for this week. And now we will go over to our guest interview of the week, which is going to be a student from the class of 2022, John Ford. So with that, I will switch over to that part of the show. And now, uh, joining me today for the guest portion of the show, I'm being uh, joined by John Ford, a member of the class of 2022, and uh, I guess self-proclaimed uh, one of the old bunch in the class, uh, the seasoned veteran, I guess. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think I think I'm the oldest one in the class of 2022. Um, I mean, that you're kind of laying out the gauntlet now that you're putting this on air. So, yeah, I, I, somebody come forward, <laughs> reach out to me at our Marshall email address, and let me know if you got me beat. I turn 37 next month. I mean, if we did Florida and birthday, that would actually be the perfect setup, but we are not today. Uh, but for the focus of today's show, rather than doing our traditional sort of talking about you and then talking about your experience at Marshall, I think you've had a very illustrious career just from the brief information you showed me that I think we can really sort of dive a lot deeper into the background that you've had prior to Marshall, uh, as well as talking about Marshall in the end, but not really so much focusing on that since I think we've, uh, I think we've 
pretty much covered all we need to know about the experiences of Marshall from the other 26 episodes so far. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll let other people decide if it's an illustrious career. It's definitely a long career. <laughs> uh, as you as you will learn, there were some uh, there were definitely some backward steps along the way, which is exactly what people need to hear about. Honestly, when it comes to making some any changes in your career, not every not every step is going to be a positive step. Sometimes you got to take two back to go three forward. So, yeah. uh, with that, before we get deeper into your experiences and learning more about your career, we want to do our intro segments, which. Uh, for this podcast, you've chosen to do or start off with the song blitz, and then in midway point, we'll jump into this few song pro. So, starting out with the song blitz, uh, you get the choice of genre, and then I attempt to match up a song in that genre to the best of my capabilities, uh, and play you a snippet to which you need to guess the artist and song name. So, do you have a genre in mind? Let's get uh, let's get some rock and roll going. Rock and roll. Any specific sort of uh, decade for rock and roll? I know it's a pretty far-reaching one. I guess just classic rock. All right, here, here's your clip going now. All right, so it's it's Led Zeppelin for sure. You're on, yeah, you're on the right track with that. Definitely Led Zeppelin. I think that song is called like. It's like Black Dog or something. Yeah, he got it. Yes. Black Dog. <laughs> I was like, I don't even know if they say Black Dog at all in the song, but you know, it is Black Dog. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's one of those, it's like the Baba O'Reilly division of songs where they never say the song name in the song. <laughs> oh, that was good. Uh, do you want to stick with the same sort of genre second time around? Or? Let's, uh, yeah, let's do it. I don't know if this is going to count as classic rock. Um, It'll probably be in that debatable category, like I usually fall into, but we'll, we'll see if it works. All right, you ready? <laughs> All right. That is Huey Lewis, I Want a New Drug. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. You got that. <laughs> Does that count? Do you know, do you know the lawsuit story? Uh, since I have a legal background, do you know the lawsuit story about that song? No, I literally just saw the song when I was searching for you. So I'm doing this on the fly, so I may fumble the details, but the song from the movie Ghostbusters, the, the, the pop song, yeah. when Huey Lewis heard that song on the radio, he was like, that's just, I want a new drug sped up. They stole our song. And there was a lawsuit and I think Huey Lewis got some money from the studio because he was able to prove that literally is just sped up. I want a new drug. Wow. I honestly, like when you, when you said Ghostbusters, I actually heard it in my head. Yeah. Like almost the Ghostbusters scene sped up. Yeah. You could probably speed it up and it would make more sense, but it just, it sounds very similar. Oddly. Huh. It's like, was that around the time of like the Vanilla Ice lawsuits too? <laughs> That would have been maybe, so Ghostbusters was 84. So it would have been like seven, eight years before Vanilla Ice. Vanilla was like early 90s then. What was the Vanilla Ice lawsuit? Was it uh, that he was sampling the Queen song? It was Without Under Pressure by Queen, yeah. Yeah. And he didn't pay him for the 
sample. He didn't pay him, but he also went on air saying like he like did the two riffs and showed how different they were and almost does he like duplicates himself by doing so. <laughs> I think I have seen that clip. Yeah. I mean, I think it was like back when uh, VH1 made like the I love the 90s kind of stuff. I feel like they had like a really long sponsorship about that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that was song, but, and you actually crushed it way harder than I thought you would. Uh, so that one, yeah, you, you went two for two without even like breaking a sweat really. So, uh, well, I think if you, we did a little pre-show thing and I think if you look at the song that we're going to end with, you can tell this is someone who likes music a lot. It's definitely a, a deep cut for sure. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so getting back into the discussion, we wanted to really focus a lot of the show on sort of your career and your background, uh, because I know that this is actually your second uh, graduate degree pursuit. So uh, we have a lot of ground to cover here. But uh, anyway, I'll sort of open the floor to you to talk about uh, whatever you want. If you want to start off from like when you graduated college and sort of your early career before uh, going back to school the, the first time. Yeah, so it, I guess technically it's my third graduate degree because oh, I got two law degrees. <laughs> two? <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get to that. But oh, my God. <laughs> it, it, was, it was because of the recession is the short version um, that I went an extra year and got an LLM. And so I oh, gotcha, gotcha. LLM, but yeah, so we're going back to college. Graduated from Loyola Marymount in 2006, and I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do, like, a lot of people graduating college really not sure what they want to do but I had a sort of vague idea that I wanted to do some public service and I was interested in politics and I lucked into I didn't even apply for the job I lucked into getting a job with Arnold Schwarzenegger's re-election campaign in 2006 and so that was my first job out of college. I feel like you need to talk a little bit more how you lucked into that. <laughs> I just got literally I just got a phone call one day because my, my resume was circulating around campaigns. Okay, because you wanted to- And so to it, it ended up, because the way the campaigns work, there are so many overlapping committees because they have to segregate operations because there are, there are donation caps. Okay. So there's like donations to the parties, donations to the candidates, but there's a lot of bleeding over those lines. And so a lot of times the staff resumes just sort of float around from one zone to another and you gotcha. just end up on somebody's desk. So they called me and offered me a, a chance to come in and interview to join their fundraising team. And we went and raised $70 million, which was, believe it or not, not enough to pay for the entire campaign. So Arnold had to write a $10 million check at the end of the campaign. I'm sure uh, that he had that in his bank, uh, unlike other, I guess, candidates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he had the 10 million was the thing. And at, at the time, it was the second most expensive non-presidential campaign anywhere in the country ever. Jesus. Um, only John Corzine, when he ran for governor of New Jersey, had spent more. John Corzine was the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, and he spent like 90 million out of pocket to get elected governor of New, Jer of New Jersey. Um, and I'm from New Jersey, and I didn't even know that, but... <laughs> So it was a huge operation. I think we had six different offices just for fundraising, like 25 people just on fundraising. So what was your like day-to-day -day looking like in terms of like fundraising efforts? Was like a lot of cold calling or event managing and stuff? Or So if anyone, 
listening to this podcast gave money to his campaign, you got a letter that I wrote for his signature. Most of what I did was donor correspondence. Gotcha. I would write all the letters for the governor's signature that would go out to donors saying thank you. You're focused on like customer retention almost. That's a good MBA way of saying it. Customer <laughs> retention. Um, and it was, it was a hard job. I mean, it was like 14, 15 hours a day, every day. Campaign jobs are really hard, which is why it got to the end of the campaign. And I thought this was a good experience, but I can't do this for the next 30 years. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I guess, I guess it's, it's, it is a cycle because campaigns only run for that short period of time. Wow. I don't know how often governor is that four years, four years. Yeah. Like once every four years, you kind of ramp up, but I guess you sort of get uh, tossed around between different campaigns so that you're kind of busy regardless if you want to stay. Yeah. So if you work, you work on a campaign and you don't win, you're just an unemployed guy Yeah. who did not make that much money on your campaign. And even if you win, there's a scramble for the staff jobs there's always another campaign. Maybe your guy isn't running two years from now. So you've got to find some midterm campaign to get on. It's a hard life. It's a hard life financially. There's no stability and very few people do it for that long. Most of them try eventually to get out and do government affairs or some kind of consulting rather than working directly on campaigns. Something remotely more stable. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I got to the end and I thought this was a great experience. I'm glad I did it. I'll always get to tell people I work for the Terminator and uh, I got to find something else to do because I can't do this for 30 years. Oh, I feel you. So after you sort of, I guess, try out the campaign route and sort of kind of, I guess, lucked into that, uh, what were you looking at in terms of your options from like after deciding that the campaign route wasn't the right move for you? I decided to do the classic cliche thing Mm -hmm. that someone who likes politics but didn't take any math classes in college decides to do when they don't know what they want to do, which is I went to law school. Okay. <laughs> I, I like wanted, you're going to a lot of people and. <laughs> including me. Yeah. Including yourself. Like all I knew was I like politics and I want to do public service. So how do I get there and get to do that at a high level? And law school is like the obvious path to trying to do that, or at least I thought it was. I guess we're gonna get more into that, aren't we? We'll, we'll get more into that. <laughs> it kind of was, in a way it kind of was. There were just a lot of downsides that go with being a lawyer that we'll get to. So I guess before we get into, I guess, the post-law school, I kind of like am intrigued about how law school was because I guess we haven't really focused or talked about that too much or like other graduate programs and stuff. So I want to know how your first four-way into graduate school went and sort of like what your experiences were. So where, where did you actually get your law degree from? I got my law degree at Chapman. Okay. Um, I wanted to go to USC or UCLA. My contract with the campaign ended on November 15th. And we were working past the election because we had to finish our financial reporting because we were, we were not turning out voters. We were paying the bills. So we had all kinds of reporting requirements we had to finish. Yep. And it was 18 days until the LSAT after the contract ended. And I just decided it's not enough. It's not enough time to do well enough on the LSAT. I needed to take it in February. It's, it's not like the GMAT where you can go and take it anytime. At least when I took it, 
it was like every two or three months they would have a big LSAT day where everybody would go take the LSAT. And I needed more time. And what that meant was I did not take the exam in time to meet the application deadline at USC and UCLA. Gotcha. So I decided to take an offer from the school that gave me the most scholarship money, which was Chapman. Thank you very much. Uh, full ride plus some money for living expenses, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, I mean, even if you had USC and UCLA, that is still a very like intriguing offer that I don't think I would turn down either. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was an interesting experience to go to Chapman. Um, it's not like business school, right? We're in the middle of a semester where we have something that's due every two or three days. Wow. In law school, you don't have anything that's due. You oh, go wait, to class, I... you take notes, you study, and then at the end, there's a final exam. And that's it. That's your grade, is you show up and you take a final exam. That's pretty wild, actually. I don't know if I would so, that. <laughs> and it's, it didn't turn out great for me because if you get serious food poisoning during the finals period and are out for three days and lose three days of studying in the middle of finals period, like what happened to me, guess what? You're not on law review. That seems like a very uh, specific situation. <laughs> but it, it is like you can just show up and have a bad day. Yeah. Or you show up and you don't know what to expect. It's tough, you know, everything, the statistics folks in our class, I'm sure if, if Professor Wen's son were here, he would say that uh, that's a big standard deviation on a small sample size. <laughs> oh my God, I've, I've, you guys have Wen's son too, that's amazing. Uh, we love him. Yeah, we I, love, love I, I loved having Wen's son. Uh, but yeah, so that actually seems like a lot of like pressure for one exam, but also just like, what do you do the rest of the semester? Is it just sort of like, up to you to sort of motivate yourself and stay involved and stay studying and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You're just studying and grinding mostly on your own or in a small group, but there's no real structure that you're given. And were there any sort of like outside clubs? Like we have like all these martial clubs with uh, career interest and stuff where they're sort of like career interested guided like law specific clubs or. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I will say networking is a very small part of the law school experience. So for me, things like, you know, the entertainment law society, the business law society, they would hold events, they would have speakers, but they would usually be very academic subjects. It would very rarely be, here's a partner at Gibson Dunn who you can meet and yep. exchange contact info with and then talk to them, and then you can get a job at Gibson Dunn. It really wasn't structured like that. Okay. Um, Which so I, I, is my big criticism of law school is, you know, if you don't go to Harvard, Yale, or Stanford, you probably need to do some networking to find a decent job. For real, actually. I mean, I, I, it's kind of surprising that you say they don't network that well. I figured that lawyers would be more of the a networking type than any other graduate school besides MBA, which obviously is really geared towards it. Um, but were you sort of involved with a more public service facing sort of lawyer group while you were there? Yeah, it was it was more uh, public interest law stuff that I was involved in. Okay. Uh, and so after going drooling through, how many years is that? Two years? It's three years. Three years. Okay. 
So after grilling with that for three years, you decide you need another year. Um, well, the housing crisis really decided it for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I graduated in 2010. The economy was just awful. Mm-hmm. You take the bar that summer and then you have to wait until about Thanksgiving for bar results. So I felt like, okay, I got to find something to do while I'm waiting for my bar results over this fall and next spring. And let's see if I can get some more skills that can prepare me for the job market. So I got an LLM in trial work. What's an LLM again? An LLM means master of laws. It's a master's degree in law that usually has some specialization. So it's a particular area of law. The most common one is tax. Lots of people have tax LLMs. Is that what you got? I got it. I got it in trial work. Okay. Uh, so trial work means that you specifically wanted to gear towards like presenting in front of judges and such. Yeah. So my career goal going into law school was I was going to graduate and get a job with the district attorney's office and be a prosecutor at the local level. And then maybe I could run for office someday after doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, 2010 comes along and has different plans. There's no revenue because the housing market has crashed. There's no property tax revenue for the counties. And so they're on a hiring freeze. And even after the LLM program where I did, the second half of the program was you worked as an intern, but you were a lawyer because you had your bar results. So you're not getting paid, but you're a full-time prosecutor at a prosecuting agency. Even after doing that, I don't think any of us had a job offer coming out of that experience. And there were maybe eight or nine of us in the program that year. It's a small program, but none of us in that LLM trial program had a job offer coming out of it, I don't think. Um, And I know one of our classmates worked for free for another year after that at the LA district attorney's office. And then finally got a job because there was no money to hire anybody. People were being furloughed who were already working there. Our whole administrative staff worked four days a week instead of five because they were being furloughed. So, you know, I come out of that program and I didn't have a job, but I had decided in law school that I wanted to be in the reserves in the U.S. Army. So I joined the U.S. Army National Guard as a JAG to do one weekend a month, two weeks a year, and have that as something that I was doing as another kind of public service. Mm -hmm. So I come out of the program and I get um, get sent off to my, my basic training, which was five months of military law school and field training. And then I come back from that in the fall, winter of 2011. And, um, I get a call as I'm doing my job search saying, Hey, do you want to come on active duty for about six months? We have a fraud case in the California national guard. And we think you would be really good for, for prosecuting this case because you've got all this training and trial work. They want to bring you on for your educational background rather than just for like active, active duty. Right. Because, you know, this is a guy, we need somebody who is a Lieutenant or a captain. And we don't have anybody who has the kind of trial background that this guy has. He's done a bunch of trials. He's got a special degree in trial work. Let's bring him on and have him do these prosecutions. And that six-month job ended up lasting about three years. Those prosecutions turned into a much bigger project 
than I think anybody realized it was going to be at the time. So what basically happened was we had some recruiters who in 2006, seven and eight were paying themselves bonuses that they were not entitled to. They were using their access to the, um, the staff that ran the bonus programs yeah. to get themselves paid a bunch of money that they were not entitled to. And in total, they stole $13 million. Which is a lot for them, but it, military budget is, is a, a little insignificant, I guess, but still warranting uh, some further <laughs> investigation. Yeah. So we had this big investigation involving the FBI, involving Army CID, involving the IRS because we wanted to make sure IRS wanted to make sure that they had paid taxes on the money they had stolen. They got (laughs) it it was classic Al Capone stuff. Like from the IRS's perspective, we don't care if you stole the money, but you need to pay tax on the money you stole. Oh, the Al Capone reference. I forgot that he's like, the only reason he got caught was because of tax fraud. Yeah. (laughs) So we had this huge investigative team it ballooned and ballooned and became a huge project. We took these guys to court martial for what they had done. A couple of them were prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office, and then the rest were prosecuted by me at court martial. But because these guys were reservists too, there was a trap door in the case that we fell through, which is why it took three years to get to the end of it. Damn. The trap door is this. You can only court martial somebody who is on military duty. Military can't court-martial you and me because we're not on military duty. Gotcha. Even me right now, I'm still in the reserve component. I'm not on orders today. So they don't have any court-martial jurisdiction over me. The court-martial system isn't there to prosecute everything that everybody in the military does that's bad. It's there to maintain discipline in the ranks. Gotcha. You have to be on active duty when you commit the crime or there's no military jurisdiction. So these guys being reservists, a lot of them didn't get paid the money that they had stolen until after their tour as a recruiter was over and they had gone back to being one weekend a month. And then there are some other complicated jurisdictional things about duty statuses that I won't go into, but it was a huge, huge issue in the case. And all the courts martial ended up getting dismissed on this technicality. So I'm working on this for a year. They all get dismissed on a jurisdiction technicality. And I'm sitting in my office, just absolutely depressed. I've never lost a case before in my life. And now I lose a whole basket of cases that are important enough that the Sacramento Bee is doing write-ups about this scandal. So this is like a huge high profile case and I've fallen flat on my face. And I was there for like three hours, just moping and thinking, how do I fix this? How do I figure out how to do this? And what I came up with was the military doesn't have any jurisdiction here. The first thing I tried to do is I tried to call, um, tried to call local DAs, see if they would be interested in this case, because we didn't have any jurisdiction, but civilian authorities would. These guys stole government money, but they met all of the elements 
for a standard larceny. Like they met all of the legal elements that someone would meet if they walked into a 7-Eleven, grabbed a beer and walked out the front door without paying. Yeah. It's just stolen property. The fact that it's federal government cash doesn't change that. So I'm calling around trying to get some kind of DA interest. And then I realized, okay, this is dumb because none of these DAs understand the military. They all are kind of scared off because they feel like this is alien to them. They don't know the rules of the game in the military. And these individuals all lived in different counties. So you had to recruit this constellation of district attorneys to prosecute seven or eight people potentially all in different counties. Why don't I just go to the attorney general's office, do one stop shopping and say, I'm going to take the mystery out of this for you. You deputize me as a deputy attorney general, and I will prosecute this. You won't have to pay a dime because I'm on military orders. The military is paying me. All I need is a piece of paper saying I can take these cases to state court. Now, nothing like this had ever been done before with a state attorney general. Mm -hmm. There are some JAGs who have a job called the USAUSA, which is they're the the U.S. attorney for federal crimes on the base. So like big bases like Fort Hood in Texas, which has like 40,000 soldiers outside Waco. Um, they have a USAUSA, I'm sure. And it's a JAG whose job it is to prosecute non-military people who commit federal crimes on this federal land. But there was nothing like this with state attorneys general. So we went to Kamala Harris's office when she was attorney general of California. And we sold her on this idea that my prosecution team and I would be deputized to take these things in state court. And so we charged them in state court did the filing after about six months of wrangling, we finally got our deputizations, mm-hmm. charged these things in state court, and they all pled guilty. They all pled guilty and saw the writing on the wall and they were like, yeah. this, this friggin' guy is out of his mind and will not let us go. I was gonna say, they probably thought they were off scot-free when the, the first sort of like, I guess, court martial thing kind oh, of yeah. threw them. Uh, but oh, just yeah. you just sort of relentlessly hound them and find sort of your own legal trap doors and like follow them through. I'm like, very good friends with one of the defense attorneys who had a couple of these guys. Mm-hmm. He's still mad about it. <laughs> like he's still mad about, I want a court martial. And this jerk comes in and gets Kamala Harris to give him a deputization to take these cases into superior court in California. This ain't even fair. When you win, you're supposed to win. How come I don't win when I win? To be fair, I mean, it's not like he was like, I guess, defending innocent people. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it it soothes my conscience that they were all guilty. But yeah, <laughs> at least there's like that writing on the wall where it's at least. I mean, he'd be mad about losing on the playing field, but at least it wasn't like, uh, <laughs> like yeah. getting innocent parties that like, isn't guilty or anything like that. Um, but it was fun. It, it was fun to run a prosecution team, to run an investigation, to be the lead trial attorney on some big complicated cases, to overcome this terrible obstacle and then finally come out on the other end. It was honestly the most, maybe the most important single professional experience that I've had because the grit and toughness that I had to develop to succeed 
in a, accomplishing that goal. I mean, like you said, like it, it sounds like really quick uh, how it's all turned around, but three years is a crazy amount of time for all this to develop over. So I can't imagine how, like, how, how deep you really had to dig to like keep yourself moving through some of the harder times, especially when like the first sort of uh, ruling got handed down a year in only to work six months to get the jurisdiction to take them to other, like the, what the state court or Supreme court, state Supreme court. <laughs> and then to actually follow up with that further only to finally quit one year in the finish line. Yeah. But it, it's, it's one of the things I'm most proud of to come up with this completely unconventional way of getting to the result. I mean, I love that. I mean, that's like kind of like you made up on the fly almost. And honestly, that, that sounds like you kind of made up your own role, <laughs> which I mean, it's a big thing in the NBA. Sometimes you guys sort of make your own job for yourself if you see an opportunity. Uh, it's a big entrepreneurial step, even if you didn't really consider yourself an entrepreneur going into the military law <laughs> job category, I guess. Uh, but before we, get, I guess we get a little further into uh, the rest of your time with the Army as well as uh, what led you to coming back to grad school, uh, I guess we'll take this time now to do our second intro segment, which is going to be uh, Do You Even Stonk, Bro? So right now I have pulled up three different stonks or stocks. I'm going to say stonks from now on. Uh, and so it's up to you. These are all lists on the S&P 500. So I limited it to that. Um, and I'm going to tell you sort of like basic details about the companies, such as uh, what sector they're in, what industry they're in, where they're headquartered, what their current like revenue and market cap is, et cetera. Any other kind of lower level details that you want. And it's up to you to sort of figure out what company I'm talking about. All so, right. Uh, again, S&P 500, a uh, software company founded in 1982, um, serves pretty much worldwide uh, software and is headquartered in Mountain View, California with a out here um let's see if i can pull up more details this is some market cap but the revenue is 11 billion as of 2019 started in 1982 and based in mountain view yes currently trading around 500 dollars 488 as of it sounds like apple I think Apple's in Mountain View. I believe Apple is in Mountain View, but is it trading at 488? I don't know what the price is offhand. They've done so many. I own the stock and I don't know what it's trading at. They've done so many stock splits. That's true. That's a fair point. Um, let's see. Market cap is 234 billion. Not Apple. Yeah. All right. Apple's like a trillion something, right? 1982 in Mountain View. Its primary exchange is the NASDAQ. So you know it's a tech company, but you already knew that. It's a software company based out of Mountain View. Let's see what else I can get out of here. That doesn't, isn't a dead giveaway. Mm. If I name anything like product wise, you get it immediately. So it's very, I'll say it's very recognizable. And that's okay. it. I'll take one more guess and then I'll probably have to give up because at, at a certain point, I'm just naming software companies. Yeah. 
I'm going to guess Intuit. Mm, you're, you're on the right. You're on a closer track, but no. Okay. Adobe? Yep. Got it. All right. Adobe. I was like, if I say like Photoshop or anything like that, it's like a dead giveaway. So, <laughs> all right. Awesome. Uh, the second one we have up for you today is also SB 500 is, wow, founded in, okay, I wanted to guess this. So you can kind of clue on that for me, but founded in 1966. It is a retail company focused on technology, uh, based, sold, based majority in North America. So it's US, Canada, and Mexico. Um, current revenue is about 42 billion. And market cap, pulling that up right now. It's not updating for me, but there we go. So technology retailer. So they're running retail stores is what their business is. 30 billion is the market cap. Um, is it Best Buy? Yep. All right. Yeah, Best you know Buy. how I got it is that you said you would not have guessed it was founded in 1966. Yeah, yeah, that's old as hell. <laughs> I also would not have guessed it was founded in 1966. That's crazy. Apparently, it used to be known as the Sound of Music uh, back mm -hmm. in 1966 when it was incorporated, and then 1983 switched to the name Best Buy, which I would right, never so have. We got one more. Yeah, we got one more. Let me just pull this stock ahead of time so I have that ready. Uh, but this is a company based in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, so it has there's two headquarters: Chicago, Illinois, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Which, I mean, if you if you think about it, in hindsight, once you get it, it makes sense. Um, based, it is totally a global industry or global business. They specialize in beverages. Convenience food, food service, snack foods. Um, at least that's what it's all it's saying here. So they're pretty much everywhere. And they are owned by uh, Berkshire Hathaway and 3D Capital. Pittsburgh and Chicago. Market cap of, wait, okay, that one's Best Buy. I'm lying. And they make beverages, beverages you said, and other sort of junk food items. It's it's, it's mainly uh, food products, it seems. Food processing industry, I think it was the, the industry it sits under. So a lot of products feature around beverages, convenience foods, sack foods, food service. I should cash. I should probably be able to get it because Berkshire owns it, but I don't pay enough attention to what Berkshire owns now. I, think they, I don't know how long they've owned it for. Berkshire owns 27%, 3G Capital owns 20%. i am going to guess Nestle. Mm. Nope. No. So, I mean, I have all like the brands here. I'm trying to look at the brands that like wouldn't give it away that I can tell you. Um, they, hmm. no, that gives it away. They do Maxwell House coffee, 
they do Capri Sun. Shows you how much time I spent in supermarkets before the <laughs> quarantine hit that this is just like not a helpful clue to me. They do Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> About the only company that I can name based on you naming their products is if the product you named was Coca-Cola. Yeah, <laughs> it's not Coca-Cola. I'll, I'll give you that much. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get to why I'm pursuing an MBA, but I think the listeners can guess it's not for a career in CPG marketing. <laughs> Uh, Frito-Lay. Mm-mm. I think Frito-Lay uh, is technically under Pepsi, isn't it? Or yeah. Pepsi under Frito-Lay? I'm not sure. But it was Kraft Heinz. Oh, my God. So you can guess why there were two headquarters, because Kraft and Heinz were like a joint merger where they decided to keep two headquarters rather than uh, pull employees out of the, I think, they wanted to keep the employees in Pittsburgh associated with uh, Heinz. Pittsburgh was the giveaway. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what should have sold it to Heinz me. Field. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, I got you on one. You kind of, you crushed the other two. So I'll take that. And now we can kind of get back into sort of the end of your time with the army at law and sort of, I guess from then, does it sort of gear straight into law or into MBA school or is there some period in between uh, after the three-year uh, debacle? <laughs> I wouldn't say it was a, deb- a debacle. I mean, there were debacles along the way, but it's like well, I mean, Winston- it, it turned out well. I think yeah, debacles yeah. are the wrong word to use, but <laughs> it's like Winston it's Churchill like said. Winston Churchill said that um, victory is a series of disasters that results in success. So I think that's a pretty good description. Um, but yeah, so I like I said, I joined as a member of the reserve component not as a member of the active duty component. So it was never the original plan to do three years on active duty. I'm glad I did it. It was a wonderful experience. It's one of the best jobs I ever had. Wouldn't change it for the world. But I got to the end of the three years and I was running these prosecutions. And I was also, um, because the full-time general counsel for the base I was at had retired from active duty, I was doing that job as well for about nine months at the end. And I was running a legal office at a nearby infantry brigade because they needed somebody to cover down and do that job. So I was doing three jobs and they were all pretty intense. And I was a little bit burned out. And I was kind of eyeing the exits a little bit and thinking, boy, I really, I really want to do other stuff. I don't want to make my whole career in the military. I don't even know if I would like this other stuff better. And so I, I chose to leave at the end of 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, speaking of disasters that result in success, <laughs> I had two job offers when I left active duty. One was at a very respected national firm that did litigation all over the country and would have been a very stable, very fulfilling job with some people at their office in Pasadena who I really thought were great people and loved meeting during the interviews. Sounds like you didn't take that one. Other job was to join my friend's law firm that she was a partner in at Costa Mesa, a small law firm that they were trying to build into a larger practice. Mm -hmm. And I chose to join up with my friend's law firm. She she had a partner named Zebulon Law and another partner that was joining them named Matt Stein. And you know that Matt Stein wasn't a very good lawyer because I can tell you this story because when he threw my ass out after the firm blew up, he didn't make me sign an NDA. Oh, wow. 
Okay. Yeah. Good job, Matt. So I can tell the story on the podcast. Basically, I took this job, turned down the other job, was all excited to be in like a startup environment and work with my friend who I knew from law school and we were going to build this big practice. And it, was yeah, so it sounded very entrepreneurial with the way yeah. that you sort of made your own role with the army. And now you're sort of taking this startup role too. That was what was attractive. President, the creation, build it from the ground up. Yep. And about two weeks into working there, Zeb calls everybody at the firm into the conference room. So we packed about 12 people into this conference room and he walks in and he says, so uh, we don't have a partnership agreement. And I'm like, I've spent two weeks signing letters over my name that at the top of the paper, it says LLP. And now you're telling me you don't have a partnership agreement. So those letters meaningless. I think that's relevant information to share with me during the interview process that you do not have a partnership agreement. So that law firm no longer exists. Okay. <laughs> um, basically, Matt wanted more money. He was doing a lot of litigation cases that build out at like 280 bucks an hour. Um, Christy and Zeb were doing some tax and business planning cases that build out at a higher rate because they were not insurance cases. One of the things I didn't like about being a civilian lawyer and why I went back to the military, which we'll get to, was that so much of it is controlled by insurance companies. And they control your billing, they control your case strategy. It's not Atticus Finch. You know, you are a glorified insurance administrator if you're working in most areas of litigation. You are getting a case and you are shepherding it to an insurance settlement on behalf of an insurance company. That's the reality of what you're doing. I spent zero days in law school learning about insurance companies and tender letters and tendering defenses and policy limits, zero days. Turns out that's most of what litigation practice actually is. Um, so he was billing out at these insurance rates, yeah. but he wanted equal profit sharing and they couldn't come to an agreement. So the firm broke up. My friend who had recruited me left. It was awkward because she was still on the lease for three more months. So she was still working in the office after she had left the firm. That's because she... <laughs> it was an unbelievably toxic environment. And Matt and Zed felt like we can't fire Christy's friend until she's out of the building. Cause then she'll yell at us for firing her friend after we promised him that his job was safe, even though the firm was breaking up. Yeah. Well, as soon as she was out of the building, my days were numbered and I, I got thrown out on my butt. Um, but I will tell you, it was, I'd never been laid off from a job or fired from a job before. And technically it was a layoff because it was not a firing for cause. So technically it was a layoff. Um, but I felt like I had been fired and I'd never been fired or let go from a job before. And I was totally devastated. But it was honestly one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I would not be here today if Matt Stein had not been a greedy weasel and blown up the business that I worked for and split it in two to get more money. Like I thought Matt Stein has ruined my life. I am now six months out of the army. I had a job for six months and got cut loose. No one will hire me. No one will touch me ever again. And it was actually one of the best things that ever happened to me because I immediately got a better job at a better firm that paid more money, number one. 
So two, that's like three steps in the right direction there. Okay. Right. And if that job had worked out and I had been like a partner in a law firm with my friend, Christy, I would still be doing that today. And it would have been the wrong path, but it wouldn't have been wrong enough. It wouldn't have been bad enough that I would have changed anything. Losing that job and going to the next law firm I was at, which was a, a, regional firm, California firm with like four or five offices in California called Collins, Collins, Muir and Stewart, um, who I thought were great lawyers. And I learned a ton from those guys. I have nothing but good things to say about them. Um, (laughs) yeah, but I didn't like the billable hour and then the amount of hours I had to bill and the feeling at the end of the week, right? You get to a Friday, and all of your work is done and it's been completed successfully and you've had a great week. Everything you needed to accomplish is accomplished. And it's 2.30 in the afternoon. Can you take off early and go to the gym? No, because you're not paid for your accomplishments. You're paid by the billable hour. So you have to go make up three more hours of stuff yeah. that is billable that you have to keep working on. So if you crush your week and you're ready on a Friday to take off early, you can't because you're not paid for your production. You're paid for your time. You and I felt like there was, firm? what's that? Are you sure you were at a consulting firm? <laughs> at least they're usually paid by the engagement. No, you still have billable hour metrics you need to meet for your like yearly quota. If you want to like stay in the game or not get fired essentially. Yeah. But um the billable hour, everything revolves around the billable hour yep. for, for lawyers. And I just found it to be a very hard way to live. Um, it was just very, very hard because I felt like my life, no minute of my life belongs to me because all of it is billable. Technically, all of it is billable. Like if I'm sleeping, I could be billing. Why aren't you billing? Were you like kind of charged to bill 40 hours a week or was your expectation like far beyond that? Um, Well, first of all, there's a difference between billing and working. Yep. You can bill about 80% of what you work unless you're just lying about (laughs) what you're doing. In reality, you can bill about 80% of it. And so they really wanted about 2,400 hours of billable time, which people can do the math, plus that up by 25%. And that's the amount that was expected of me for working. In reality, I was working from the time I was in the office, walked in the front door to the time that I left, not including the time that I would spend eating lunch. It was about 65, 70 hours a week. Um, no exaggeration, no puffing it up. By I was, <laughs> I was re- speaking of consulting, I was reading a Reddit board about hours in consulting. And this guy who claimed to be a McKinsey consultant was like, yeah, I work 80 hours a week. And somebody asks him to walk through his day of what the 80 hours are. And he starts with, so I get up, got to get ready for the airport. So I pack my bag on Sunday night and then I get up on Monday and I brush my teeth. And I'm like, hold on. Did you just try to count brushing your teeth as part of your 70 hour work week? (laughs) You can't believe what people say when they say how much they work because you have no idea what they're counting or if they're just making a number. I was going to say, like consulting, I would never actually count my travel to and from the airport or my time flying. I would say outside of that, it was probably around 40, maybe even less arguably in some cases. 
Yeah. And so you get people who are just in the business of exaggerating because they think if I tell you I work 80 hours a week, that means I'm important. And my response is always, if you tell me you work 80 hours a week, I know you're not important because if you were important, you'd work 20 hours a week while somebody else worked 80 hours a week to pay for your boat, which is where you would be the other 60 hours that you're not working. Okay. Like that's the guy who's important is the guy who works 20 hours and then leaves and goes on his boat. So that's the guy who knows he's important. Then there's a the guy who wants to act as important and say he's right. eight hours a week. <laughs> so I was I was legitimately at my job doing work 60 to 70 hours a week, which that's is big. a lot. That is, yeah, that is because um, the numbers, I think I think I just did a crunch. It's, if you bump your numbers up by 25%, it's like 58 hours a week that you were billable. Yeah. Or that you were able to bill, but then you only build 80% of that. Yeah. And, you know, you've got all kinds of other stuff. You've got your continuing legal education. You've got to do a certain number of hours of continuing legal training and it just becomes exhausting. And then you have time when you're, you're at the courthouse, but you're not doing your case. And so some clients won't let you bill commuting to the courthouse. That's three hours away because you got a case in San Bernardino and you're in Orange County. It's, it's a lot. And I just decided boy, I don't know that this is right for me. And another, like- I I need a vacation just hearing this, so. Yeah. (laughs) And then in in November of 2016, I'm sort of at the point where I'm trying to like find another job, maybe go to a different firm. It was a great firm, by the way. I'm still friends with people at that firm. I had a great relationship with everybody. They do great legal work. I'm sorry to all of our aspiring real estate developers because they do real estate litigation, but they only represent architects and engineers. And they're probably better than the lawyers that our friends who are going to be real estate developers are going to hire. So I apologize for my friends (laughs) at the Collins firm. Uh, When you hire an architect who builds a building and the building falls over because he's a bad architect, they're going to make sure that guy doesn't have to pay too much money. So I'm sorry about that, but you know, they're good people. So forgive them. Um, but I was, I was looking for, okay, do I go back to some kind of government work? Do I try to get a job at the DA's office? What do I do next? And like in Forrest Gump, the little feather of destiny floats into the screen and I get a call from my friend um, asking me if I wanna come back on active duty. And there's a spot open because my friend Steve Jester was leaving a program called the Special Victim Council Program. And he wanted me to take his spot and was going to put in a recommendation for me if I wanted it to take this position and go back on active duty and work for an organization called the National Guard Bureau, which is sort of the overseer of all the state National Guards based in Arlington, Virginia. Oh, okay. Yeah. They aren't the commander of any National Guard, but they're sort of the overseer that makes sure all the state National Guards are meeting the same national standard. So you were and, you went to Arlington, Virginia after being in California. I'm pretty sure this entire time. So that's one of the great things about the SVC position is I did not have to move. Oh, okay. I was going to wonder if you had like three different bars and to actually practice in Virginia or anything like that. No, in fact, federal employees and military lawyers, um, when you move to a new state, you don't have to take the bar in the new state. Because the state bar cannot regulate the federal government. The federal government is supreme. So you have 
whatever the qualifications are that the Department of Justice says are necessary, you yep. can work for the Department of Justice in a U.S. Attorney's Office in any state. Okay. Um, but I, so the, the job that I was offered was special victim counsel. And what I basically did is I represented victims of sex crimes in the military. And because they were National Guard soldiers, they're all over the country. So your cases are wherever the soldiers are. So I visited, I think, 30, 35 states over the last three years doing this job. And because you're traveling so much, it doesn't make sense to make you relocate. So I got to just live where I was living, yeah. um, get the locality pay for living in Southern California, get the per diem for travel. Yeah. My boss is in Arlington, Virginia, 2,500 miles away. I had more autonomy and more freedom than any job I've ever had. I got to do all this good for people that I cared about. It was the start of the Me Too movement in 2017 and 2016. So I felt really inspired to go and do this and be a part of trying to combat sexual assault in the military. And it was a very sort of high profile job because Congress was looking over our shoulder the whole time. And we had to show Congress we can handle our own business because Congress was talking about taking authority over sex crimes cases away from the military so that it didn't go to court martial anymore. It would go to a U.S. attorney. You have, you've, you've not done enough to deal with this problem. Yeah. We're going to just take this authority away from you. So it was a, a brand new program, again, very entrepreneurial. It had just been created in 2015, I think. Um, so it was ground up again, build something from the ground up and be entrepreneurial and find a way to make this mission work. And so that's what I did as I flew all around the country and represented 50, almost 50 different people in courts martial and investigations. And it was a fascinating job and an incredibly fulfilling job. And unfortunately in the military, you can only do a job for about three or four years and then you got to move on. <laughs> and so if they had let me stay in that job, I'd still be doing it today. I would have never left. I okay. loved that job. I mean, was the person that I guess you supplanted kind of similar interest where they were sort of just moving on to the next thing as well? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a lot like that. He had been promoted to major, and so it was time for him to yeah. move on to his next thing. Uh, so what was sort of, I guess, I guess, like talking about that a little bit more, uh, what was sort of your day-to-day -day of that job? Um, I get you travel a lot more. Uh, what was I was on the road about 160 days a year. Holy crap, okay. Yeah. Um, I was on the road about 160 days a year. And I got to go all over the country. I've been to every region of this country and God, I loved it. <laughs> well, it what, was, was your what was your favorite stop actually, if you had one? Okay. What's that? What was your favorite stop if you had one outside of California area? I, would... I think Washington is so beautiful. Washington state, mm -hmm. you get up there in the fall. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. It's so perfect. The air is just crisp and clean and there's trees with the leaves changing color and summers up there are so green. It's unbelievable. I've never seen so much green in my life. God, I love that job. But, but a lot of our country is a fascinating place to go visit. I went to Fargo, North Dakota to handle the case. Oh, wow. And I'm up there to do an interview that took half a day, but because it's Fargo, it's not like you can just catch a flight every 30 minutes to get back to Los Angeles. So I did this interview in the morning, had the whole afternoon, nothing to do. So I start Googling what are fun things to do in Fargo. And two blocks from my hotel is the Fargo-Moorhead Visitors Center. 
And in the Fargo-Moorhead Visitor Center, they have the, the actual wood chipper prop that was used in the movie Fargo. <laughs> and so I've got a picture of myself with a, a goofy snow hat with ear flaps, mm -hmm. pushing a plastic leg into Steve Buscemi's wood chipper. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's Peter Stormare's wood chipper, isn't it? I, oh, I, I, know, I know the wood chipper is a huge part when they throw the guy in. I forget whose it is. Yeah, I think I think Peter Stormare kills Steve Buscemi in the wood chipper, not the other way around. Okay. Oh man, I lost. I watched that. I just, I just remember the wood chipper. <laughs> I, one of the places I got into was NYU, and one of their essays is um, you're supposed to have six images oh, that represent yeah, you as a person. That. Yeah. And I had as one of my images the poster from The Big Lebowski, because I love the Coen Brothers movies and I love that movie. It was two weeks after the application deadline that I went to Fargo and got this picture with the wood chipper. And you're like, some of this would have been a way better picture to use. <laughs> I mean, I got, I got in anyway, but it's like, if I had not gotten into NYU, I would have thought about that forever. Uh, so I guess you're at this job, I guess having the time of your life for three years. Uh, like you said, it got to the point where I guess as all things do in public service, well, it's time to sort of move on or find the next thing. Uh, was that around the time when you sort of started looking into your MBA prospects? Yeah, so my two stints in the military were eye-opening because when I was in high school, in college, in law school, I was a very sort of bookish, um, shy, academic person. I became a confident person and an outgoing person in the military. I got to be a leader in the military. I got to be an entrepreneur in a way in the military, like yeah. we've talked about. I got to understand people in the military, having to work with them and having to lead them and then having to um, represent these victims of sex crimes who were so different from me. They were almost all 19, 20, 21 years old, almost all women and having to understand different people and different perspectives and empathize with them. It was such a learning experience and it changed me so much. And I came out of it thinking, you know, I had about a year and a half left in my tour and I knew, okay, it's time to start forward planning, see what's gonna be next. I really did not wanna go back to the law, not just because of the billable hour, but because as a lawyer, you really don't do any leadership. You're just working your cases and billing your cases. Yep. You're not, you know, I got to be convoy commander on a 600 vehicle convoy. Show me a private litigator who has ever commanded a 600 vehicle convoy. It's just not a thing that happens. Nothing in that category happens. And so I knew that I wanted to do something that would let me do more leadership uh, work. And my friend, Mike went to Harvard Business School. He had been a Marine. Can I, I'm gonna tell a funny story about how I met Mike. Yeah. So I, when I was on active duty the first time, I had uh, a second bedroom in my condo. And so I rented it out to a Chapman Law student. And I go on vacation because I'm in my last year. So I'm burning off all my leave. So I went for 17 days to Japan and Singapore. When I leave, when I leave, she is like the most single, single girl you've ever met. She's on Tinder. She's bragging about how she's got, I don't know, 8,000 Tinder matches or whatever. She's like the <laughs> queen of Tinder, according to her. And she probably was. 
Um, but she was like the most single, single girl you've ever met. I leave for 17 days. I come home. I drop my suitcase. She's there. And she goes, so while you were gone, I met this guy, Mike, and he kind of lives with us now. <laughs> Mike was a Marine stationed at Camp Pendleton. And when he got out of the Marines, he went to Harvard Business School. Yeah. Um, and that, I, I went up to visit him while I was in SBC. Around the time I was having to make the decision of, okay, what's the next step? And it just seemed like what he was doing was opening doors that were so much more interesting than anything I could do in private law. And I felt like this is much more in line with what I'm good at now. It used to be, I'm good at writing and researching and logical analysis and all those things are still true. But the military has given me this whole other dimension that if I go back to being a lawyer, I will never open that box again. Yeah. I don't wanna do that. So I decided to pursue an MBA, try to move into a leadership position in business where I felt like I could be more creative, um, where I could be in charge of an organization, where I could be entrepreneurial and do the kinds of things that I knew I would never get to do in the law, where I would just be building a case over and over and over again for 30 years. When you put it that way, it makes uh, the decision to quit your MBA all that more attractive uh, just because of just the constant different sort of career pursuits you can have, as well as, I mean, we keep running into this entrepreneurial threat. I think it's sort of like a theme here at this point. Uh, where you can really take that and run especially from an MBA perspective. Uh, working at startups, making your own startup, or finding a role where you can really kind of throw out your own niche where you see like a budding interest or like a profitability in terms of like an established firm. Uh, but in terms of like your MBA, like what, what were you looking for? So I know you applied to NYU, we went over that. Did you apply to HBU after? Uh, seeing your friend go there and such, or like what was sort of your exploration phase in terms of research? Yeah, I applied a bunch of places. I did seven applications in round one. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> there was a lot of essays. Yeah. Um, I did apply to HBS. I did not get in. I learned pretty quickly that HBS was not going to take me because HBS just does not take lawyers. Really? Harvard Business School, I learned this during my research. And look, if somebody wants to say what I found during my research is wrong, feel free to email me your angry comments. You know, yes, I was a- them all towards John. I was a partner at Boys Schiller and I got into Harvard Business School like, okay, fine. Um, they don't like lawyers because they think if you're a lawyer, why do you need another degree? You have a profession. And if you want to change professions and go into business, if you were really a great lawyer, you could network your way into it, be an in-house counsel, and then move on to the business management side. I don't think that logic is correct for a lot of reasons. Uh, ironclad, also, yeah. Yeah, but that appears to be the attitude of Harvard Business School towards lawyers. So they are also very biased towards younger candidates. For like their traditional full-time program. For the full-time MBA program. 
just like Stanford is very, very interested in younger candidates. It's the older you get, the more of a, a difficulty there is because Stanford has that MSX program. And if you're 36, 37, 38, Stanford does not want you in their MBA program. That's what they have the MSX program for. So like EMBA-ish? Or? It's, it's their version of an EMBA. Okay. And it's a one-year full-time program. Um, so I applied to Harvard, USC and UCLA, NYU, Columbia, where I think I didn't get in because they didn't think I was going to move to New York, which they're not totally wrong. Like I, I probably would have gone if I had gotten in, but so, the interviewer walking out of the interviewer said, well, I guess you're not going to New York. I, I guess you're not interested in, you no, know, what he said was, I guess you're pretty focused on staying in Southern California. And I, the UCLA University applications I can't figure out why he picked that up, but something I did gave the game away that one way or another, I wanted to end up back here. Was he wrong <laughs> necessarily? He wasn't wrong that I wanted to end up in Southern California. I think he was wrong that I wouldn't have gone to Columbia. Um, but oh well, and, and I applied to Wharton, made the interview round, but Wharton actually cares if you've taken math classes before you come to business school. And I think Uh there was a, I loved Wharton, my visit there, but there was a very square peg round hole problem at Wharton. Gotcha. I'm, I'm doing fine in all the math classes, but I just didn't have the math background to give them the comfort level. But yeah, this guy's going to thrive in the most quantitative business program in the world. I think there was just a piece missing on the resume for them. But the first school that I visited was USC. And if you had told me at the start of it, John, I can guarantee you will get into USC. Do you want to risk that and apply or do you want to just take USC? 100% I would just go into USC. I'm very happy to have ended up here. This was the, this was really the place, USC and UCLA were the two places I had my sights set on from the beginning. So you, you kind of had your sights setting on like sticking around the Southern California area, even though if you were pulling a direction, you probably could have pulled. But I guess what really drew you towards, I guess, the Marshall, uh, the Marshall candidacy more than so than the UCLA one? It was the network. It was the Marshall network. Um, it was clear from my research on schools that the Marshall Network is not just strong, but it is almost fanatical about promoting other Trojans. And Marshall, and Marshall has, not only are the alumni more dedicated to the success of Trojans, I think, than the UCLA alumni tend to be, Marshall has this ace in the hole which is a huge undergraduate business program with a huge universe of alumni that you can also draw on. Where if you go to UCLA, I don't even think they have an undergraduate business school. It's really just the Anderson alumni. I never actually looked into that. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, think, if, I think USC after the Wharton School has the largest student body for their undergraduate business program in the country. I mean, I have like the, the Zoom background up right now, but it's like the centennial for the actual 
USC Marshall School of Business. That's not specific for the MBA program. That's just for yeah. business program in general. I may be overstating it vis-a-vis UCLA, but the <laughs> undergrad, the undergraduate side, there is this ace in the hole that Marshall has, which is this huge universe of undergraduate program grads that you can draw on. So I just felt like having gone to a law school that got me to go there based on scholarship money, I had a very, very distinct understanding of the appreciation of a top-notch career services office, which Marshall has, and a dedicated alumni network, which Marshall has. Those were things that I really felt like I was missing coming out of law school, that I had to make every road. Nothing was made for me. And I didn't want to repeat that experience. And I have found the USC alumni will return phone calls and emails with a, to an extent that blows me away. And the dedication of the folks in our career services office to try to make recruiting work in the virtual environment has been so impressive to me. I'm so glad that we've got these guys in career services, really all the way up and down the career services staff. They've done incredible work for me. I was actually going to say, before we wrap things up, I was kind of curious to know, like, what's your recruiting experience been like so far? And I guess go, you can go into more detail about how the career services in general has, I guess, enabled you to pursue. I'm not sure what you're pursuing in terms of your post-graduate careers, your internship-wise. So, uh, yeah, yeah elaborate on that. So I'm looking at a couple industries, but mainly I'm working on consulting right now. And my experience has been, I think like a lot of people's experience has been, it's been a little bit hard to do everything virtually. But you find ways to make it work and everybody that you're communicating with, the person on the other end of that communication understands how hard it is for you because they've been living with this in their work too for six months, seven months. Mm -hmm. So when you reach out to somebody at a firm and they've been working at home for seven months and it's starting to get on their nerves that they can't go into the office, they're starting to get a little bit tired about how their kid is seven years old and is stuck at home learning to finger paint on zoom class. Like we're all in this together. So they get it. They're making it easy to do something difficult. And the career services staff has set up ways through virtual roundtables and other kinds of uh, connection activities to try to get people into a position where they can recruit effectively. Um, I remember the first consulting roundtable, which I think was the first virtual roundtable USC did this year for the first years. Um, There was an issue with my profile registration at the MBA exchange site. And Jack Rehnquist is up at 1030 at night fixing my virtual registration for the event the next morning. Right. Like that's the level of dedication to our success that we are seeing from career services. So. That's great to hear. I mean, it, obviously, it's like, yeah, like you mentioned, this is sort of the world everyone's living in right now. Even the career service people who are so used to the traditional way of recruiting. So this is a whole new world for them as well. And I can yeah. 100% say that on my end, it seems like they're, they're fully invested in sort of dedicating their time to making it as impactful as possible for this virtual recruiting season that we're stuck in. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I, I cannot give them more props for how they've been handling it, especially with a lot of adversity given just the, the huge hurdle they've been sort of thrown into. Yeah. Uh, but that about wraps up our time for the show today. So uh, I want to thank you again, John, for joining today. Uh, that was a really fun, detailed conversation, learning about your time, just sort of coming out of undergrad, uh, entering the army off of like, just sort of like, or, oh, wait, 
first entering the campaign for Arnold Schwarzenegger off of just, I guess, a random resume floating around to then somehow getting invested into the army after joining the reserves uh, to have something to do, uh, to then going into public service for a brief stint before that went up and exploded. Uh, <laughs> we'll not throw Stein under the bus any more than we need to. And then coming back to the army to actually take a lot more high profile of a position uh, working with uh, sex crime cases. Uh, and then finally, after all that, knowing that your next step in the road is not going back to law, but actually getting your MBA and building out more of that, I hope, entrepreneurial lifestyle that you've been living so far. Uh, so great conversation all around. Uh, two things before we wrap up, though. One is going to be, as a thank you for coming on the show, I give you a minute to sort of promote or talk about anything that you want to promote. So you can shoot birthday, birthday shout outs, uh, give props to your core team, props to professors, career services, whatever floats your boat. So the time's yours. All right. So we've got an election coming up. And as has become clear, I'm a politically engaged person. So I'm going to use my minute to do an election <laughs> endorsement. I am old enough to remember once upon a time when this country impeached a president because it decided that being president of this country was to some extent about character. And I think what we've learned in the last four years is that being president of this country is entirely about character. And we're gonna get a chance on Tuesday, especially for those of you who have not moved to Los Angeles and are still residing in your swing state home states, we're gonna get a chance to vote for character and vote for Joe Biden. And I'm saying that as somebody who once upon a time worked for a Republican governor of this state, people should go and vote for Joe Biden for president. That's how I want to use my one minute. All right. Excellent use of your minute. Um, and then as a final, I guess, wrap up for the show, you get to play things out with your choice of song for the night, which I believe you've already delivered to me. Um, so it is going to be, was it Bring It On Home To Me or Bring It, bring it On Home To Me by Sam Cooke? Is this specific? You want me to play this specific live at Harlem Square version? Yeah, so this is, this is, I actually, we were talking about my trip to Fargo. I discovered this song on my trip to Fargo. Uh, if you've seen the movie Ali by Michael Mann, the opening intro of that movie is a montage that's played over a, a Sam Cooke impersonator doing this version of this song. But this is like a sped up, up-tempo version of Bring It on Home, on Home to Me that Sam Cooke did in 1963 at a show called Live at Harlem Square. And about 20 years later, it was released as a vinyl record because somebody found the recording and released it as a record. And it became a hit record 20 years later. And it's a fantastic version. So I want to give people something they probably haven't heard before and maybe get them engaged in uh, the music of the late, great Sam Cooke. I was going to say, I, I have not heard of this but the more you keep talking about it, the more i'm actually pretty excited to listen to it myself but uh yes that's all the time you've had for today so again i've been your host Judge McDermott, uh, and thank you again john Gore, for taking the time every day to have this discussion with us it was a really thrilling one and i think this is actually going to be really detailed and full of content for people who are just uh, more intrigued about your background as well as sort of your unique career path towards uh, entering the nba curriculum all right and then the play you off today is going to be Bring It On Home to Me, the live at Harlem Square version by Sam Cooke. And we'll see you next time, folks. Honest with you.
I tell her, listen here, baby, I want you to listen to this song right here for me. Got to tell you, I feel right now. This song gonna tell you how I feel. I know you've been going away from me a long time, but listen, baby, if you ever change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind, oh, bring it to me. Listen, I gotta be a man to tell you this Honey, look, I'll give you jewelry I'll give you some of that money too But listen, oh, that ain't all That ain't all Sam will do for you All you gotta do is bring it to me Bring that good mother, baby Bring it all home to me I gotta tell you this, though, this is important Listen to me Don't you know that I'll always be a slave <laughs> till I'm buried, buried in my grave. But while I'm living, bring it to me, bring that good loving baby, bring it all home to me. One more thing I gotta tell you, listen to me right now. You know that I tried to treat you right. What did you do? Oh, you stayed out. You just stayed out late at night. I don't care who you was with. Bring it to me. Bring all that good loving, baby. Bring it on. Everybody's with me. Everybody's with me tonight. Look, listen. Let me hear you say yeah. 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 You with me. That sounds pretty good to me. I want you to do that for me one more time. You gotta do that for me one more time, huh? Let me hear you say, yeah. Yeah, 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 Say, yeah, 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 Bring it all home.